Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins, and welcome back to the Box and One podcast. We are here less than 48 hours away from the start of March Madness, every basketball fan's favorite time of year. Whether you're an NBA guy, a college basketball fan, or more of a casual who just tunes in to try to figure out if one of your Cinderella picks is going to earn you some big money. Everybody is watching March Madness this time of year, and we are really excited as we're recording this here on Tuesday night to be less than 48 hours away from the tip-off of the tournament. I am joined this evening by good friend Eric Shapiro. He's a former player scout over at SIS, has an unbelievable Twitter account that you have to follow if you are a Hoops fan, you enjoy tactical breakdowns and just a lot of great tidbits on matchups. Eric is going to be here to talk to us about the matchups of the NCAA tournament. I will have a little bit more of a prospect focus to this, and Eric is going to bring his expertise from breaking down teams for the tournament, something that he has done in partnership with Hoop Vision and getting ready for the NCAA tournament. Eric, the big question here is we're thrilled to have you. How are you? I'm doing great, Adam. Um, as a fan of, of your content and this podcast, um, I'm super happy to be on. And I mean, what better time to talk basketball than um, first day of the playing games is, is tonight. And then obviously, as you said, on Thursday, starting with the real game. So yeah, no better time. And I'm, I'm super excited to have this conversation. Well, we're, we're glad that you're here. And, and there's you know, one tradition that we uphold on the Boxing One podcast as a listener. You know it. We start with a, a big question philosophically for every single one of our guests. You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you instruct your team to foul? What are you telling them to do? Yeah, so <laughs> I feel like semi-passionately about this, and I, I mean, I knew the question was coming. Um, I think it just it, it ends up being too much of like a, like a black or white, like you have to do one or the other type of thing. And for me, it would, this might be a little bit of a cop-out, but it would be like whatever we practice, like you practice shot selection, you practice, you know, defensive scheme, like whatever it is. Um, same thing for fouling um, up by three. Like if, if we practice defending, then that's probably the strategy I'd go with. And um, if we practice fouling, that's the strategy I'd go with. Um, I think with five seconds left, you have maybe a little more leniency with, with fouling, um, like, like, let's say the player that caught the ball was like running towards his own basket, like not towards the one you're defending. I think it probably makes more sense to foul in that situation. Um, but generally I would say whatever I practiced. So, you know, it, it seems like maybe you, you can't lose if you, if you foul, but, um, the data is a little old, but in a Ken Palm study, he, he, I think it was like 90, three and 91.2 or something like that. So it's really close when you, when you look at the data and that's why I think I would go back to whatever we've practiced and drilled with, with the team. Yeah. And I always go back to, you have to, if you're going to foul, you have to trust your inbounders and your free throw shooters, right? It, it comes down to knowing right. kind of your personnel and what type of a group that you have. If, if you're a really good coach on the defensive end and you preach defensive identity for the first 39 minutes and 55 seconds, then why not preach defense for the final five as well and rely on yourselves yep. getting stopped? So it, it does come back to KYP, right? Know your personnel, know who you're coaching and what your team's identity is. Yep. And I, I think another thing that gets lost maybe in the, in the conversation is um, like three point shooting goes down like significantly in those situations where I think it's like under 20%, um, under five seconds. So um, it's not a typical, you know, like 35% for like an average shooter, you know, something like that. Um, just because when you're defending and you know, the other team has to shoot a three, you're, you're, you're more likely than not going to get a worse look off. So um, 
yeah, I, I, I like having a nuanced conversation about it as opposed to, you know, you go on Twitter and people are just banging their hands on the tables. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we're fairly aligned in how we think about it. For sure. For sure. Well, as, as we're getting ready here for, for March Madness, I think the best use of our time together is to be talking a lot about matchups, right? We could go in and break down every single game pod by pod and try to give listeners some picks. There are plenty of mainstream places that do that. We could go in here and talk specifically about all of the best players and prospects on an NBA standpoint, the kind of top end, the top 10 guys, who they're playing and what their path is. We're not going to do that either. We're going to have maybe a little bit of a hybrid where we're going over some of the most intriguing first round matchups, maybe a couple second round matchups that we're watching, the tactics, the X's and O's, getting to know each team intimately, and then trying to look at some of the individual players that might stand out for draft purposes within those matchups. So I think anytime you look at a prospect, it's very important to know the context surrounding them, right? What is their coach trying to get? out of their offense, their defense, so that you have a little bit more of an understanding when you watch that prospect of what to expect. And that's what we're really going to set the table here for. Some of those casual fans, more NBA guys who only tune in to see certain names during this week, how can we educate them while also making sure that you and I are are kind of getting our junkie fix for all of the high-level conversations that we need to be having. So you're a Michigan guy. (laughs) We want to start there because they have one of the most fascinating matchups to me in the first round. I mean, looking at the entire entirety of the bracket of all 32 first round games, Michigan, Colorado state, a six 11 matchup stood out to me as being probably the most interesting. Tell me a little bit about Michigan, right? What about the style that they have played with this year? What's different from past Michigan teams, some of their best guys and how you Mm -hmm. think they might match up with a Colorado state team that I know you've divin into a little bit too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as a Michigan grad, yeah, I'm somewhat partial and, and probably know them better than any other team, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to give, you know, my objective analysis of it. Um, and I have dug into the matchup a pretty good amount, um, already. So, uh, I guess different than past Michigan teams is, uh, especially under Juwan Howard, they've been really strong defensively. And, um, this team is not that at all. Um, they really struggled to defend in space, particularly like in the pick and roll, um, with Hunter Dickinson as, um, the center. Um, but offensively they, they run a lot of their stuff through him and their best way of creating advantages is him scoring in the paint or drawing double teams against smaller teams and, and, and kicking it out. Um, and I guess another aspect offensively, Devonte Jones, who's a transfer from coastal Carolina. Um, I think he had like a little bit of buzz before the season as like a late second round guy. Um, but he, he's really struggled to start the year. I think in that transition coming from mid-major to high major, um, big 10 play. And he, he got a lot better in the last two months and he's really kind of been hitting his stride and, and has really, um, I, I guess giving them another dimension in terms of the, the pick and roll game and um, scoring for himself kind of in that floater range um, and kicking it out to shooters like Caleb Houston and uh, Eli Brooks. Um, so I guess and I'll stop there um, it's just, before it's, I get into the matchup. It seems like it's been such an inconsistent year for Michigan, top to bottom, right? You talk about Devontae getting off to a rough start, Hunter Dickinson trying to transfer into being the man, right? Kind of a little bit more of a secondary piece last year with some of the offensive potency that they had with Franz Wagner. Now right. really running everything a little bit more through Dickinson. Musa Diabate has come on pretty strong over the final month or so of the season, but his play is pretty inconsistent. 
they're long. Michigan is super, super long, kind of three through five. If you have Caleb mm-hmm. Houston, Musa Diabate, and Hunter Dickinson all sharing the floor, that is a super, super long team for college basketball with just their collective wingspans. That said, Houston's really the only one out of them that, that can shoot a jump shot. Uh, yeah. and, and that that causes kind of that really contrasting style of play, whereas what Michigan teams have been used to, whether it was under Beeline or the first year under Howard, is a little bit more space, some nuanced spread ball screen stuff. It's a lot mm-hmm. harder to do when you have two bigger guys on the floor that don't shoot it and, and a guy like Caleb Houston who's a little bit more of that traditional 3 and D mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And w- when you say that description, you think, um, oh, so this team should be better defensively right. um, because they have all that length and maybe struggle offensively because they have that more cramped spacing. But it's really been the reverse. Um, they've really struggled to defend um, in space. I-, I think, you know, last year, the team looked really similar in terms of the starters last year, besides the um Franz Wagner, Isaiah Livers, Wings, and you swap that out with Caleb Houston and Musa Diabate. And I think some of the struggles defensively kind of go back to those two guys. I'm not trying to like blame those two, but but Franz was an incredible defender and he kind of papered over some of the issues maybe in the ball screen stuff with, with Dickinson as a um, secondary rim protector. Um, but Houston isn't that at all. Um, he's kind of put on like the worst wing or guard the other team has most of the time. And he, he knows his off-ball responsibilities like he's a totally solid defender but he's not outstanding I would say Um, and then Diabate is I would say more inconsistent like he shows flashes of rim protection but he makes like a ton of mistakes he commits fouls like he's the typical like you know raw defender that has the tools and you know shows ability to switch out on the perimeter on the smaller guys but he's not consistent at this point and maybe some of his instincts in terms of rim protection are um not all the way there yet, um, or, you know, something that needs to be developed. So I think that speaks to some of the defensive issues. And then offensively, um, I mean, Juwan Howard's playbook is like wildly deep. Like, I don't even know how you prepare for them. Um, just so many different plays. And, um, even though they have that, those spacing issues, um, they, they score out of ball screens, they're a good offensive rebounding team. Um, Dickinson has shown some ability to pick and pop, um, in the middle and end of big, big 10 season. So giving a little bit more spacing. So uh, yeah, I, I think they're a little bit better offensively for sure. And, and what they're undoing in the tournament and just the whole season has been defensive issues um, for the most part. Yeah. Well, it, it's going to be a fascinating matchup against Colorado state. And I'll let you go into the specifics of this, but Colorado state plays a little bit smaller. They, yeah. they shoot, it, shoot it pretty well. And they've got one guy, David Roddy, who is a matchup nightmare, whether, He's playing in the Mountain West or really against major conference teams because he's probably about six foot five and 250 pounds, an absolute load who loves to, you know, post up guys who are smaller than him. He shoots it from three and can take bigger guys off the bounce, like very stereotypical matchup nightmare on the wings in those ways. And Colorado State uses him so well. So I'll let you dive into the Rams because I know you've been watching a lot of film on them. What's going to intrigue you about the matchup between those two? Yeah, I think you completely nailed it with Roddy. Um, the exact thing I wrote in my notes was was mismatch nightmare. Um, just just like you said, uh, you know, he's strong as hell and he can, you know, if you put a, a thinner guy on him, he, he can kind of, you know, get him in the post. Um, but then he's also quick enough that if you put a five on him like Dickinson, he's going to 
drive by him. And he, he has a good handle, um, even though I think that was maybe one of his weaknesses from what I understand earlier in his career. Um, and, and before this season, he was really like a 20, 20-ish percent um, three-point shooter. And now he's, I think he's in the mid forties um, on like a hundred attempts. So he he's much improved as a shooter. And I think he, you know, he's a nightmare, not only for Michigan, but really anybody to guard. Um, their offense is is that is probably the most similar to like if any Michigan fans are, are listening to this like a John or familiar like a John Beeline type of offense where um, you know two guard offense with that chin action you know back screen to a ball screen um, they run the slice series stuff that that he used to like um, and then they have Princeton concepts too so like mixed in like um, like pass it to the elbow run split action on one side. Um, so yeah, it, I think they're really tough to guard and um, Michigan isn't the best communicating off ball. So I think that could be a bit of a challenge for them. Um, and then, I mean, I guess on the other end, you get back to Dickinson and I think that's going to be quite the load for, <laughs> for Colorado state to guard. Uh, they like to play Roddy at the five some, and, you know, as you said, he's six, five, he's strong, but he's six, five and Dickinson seven, two, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, they like to double the post and they kind of do a no middle post, um, where, where, where they're forcing the guy baseline and they bring help. Uh, so I think they'll do that a lot for sure, whether they have a traditional five in that is uh, like thinner or if Roddy's in. But I think those are probably some of the bigger stylistic things um, in this matchup. Well, and it's, it's interesting with the doubling the post because they love to force baseline and trap from the baseline. Dickinson loves to spin baseline. Spin baseline, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's his his go-to move. So that, that's, that in itself is going to be a real contrast of styles can Roddy play at the five and is Colorado State going to want to lean into that where we're going to have two mismatches on either end that each side just kind of slows down and tries to exploit for me I think a lot of NBA draft people are watching to see what Roddy can do defensively who does he guard on Michigan what type of impact can he have is he versatile enough to really guard bigger guys who are going to try to post him up that are really polished and skilled down low like Dickinson is you know, who's going to guard him? Is it Musa Diabate? Is it Caleb Houston? Like what's, what's Michigan's best plan for trying to guard David Roddy, especially in those moments in Colorado state go small. I have no idea as a coach, I can't wait to watch, but I think there's a lot of intrigue for draft minds out there as well to see a little bit more about the versatility of Roddy to see how Caleb Houston continues to play. Cause he's been better over the last month. And then what Musa Diabate could give you, because he, like you said, wildly inconsistent. If this is one of those really good nights and he locks down Roddy, he becomes probably a popular game. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and just one more thing on this. Like, I think Diabate is like the only guy in that starting group that really has a chance against Roddy. So that'll be a good matchup from a, from a draft perspective. Um, and then if, if Roddy's at the five, I mean, I, I, Michigan plays a two, three zone that, gives up a lot of open looks, but I think that that's their only chance in that five out look um, if Dickinson's in the game. So um, they, they do play Diabate at the five some, but that's taking your best player off the court. So I don't know if you want to do that. So I, I would imagine the zone a lot when Roddy's at the five and then Diabate um, and, and Roddy probably guarding Diabate too. So that should be a good matchup from, you know, draft and scouting. I just, I can't wait to watch that one. I'm going to make sure that I'm glued to my TV for that. But uh, for the next matchup, we'll, we'll talk about here. We'll stay inside the Big Ten. And in fact, going to a team that goes up against another high-powered mid-major team. That's Ohio State and Loyola. I, I had Ohio State 
as one of my sleepers kind of before the bracket came out, right? We all have teams that we think are going to be underseeded or going to do really well in March or built to win. Ohio State was that for me. They're big, they're skilled, they pass it well, really crisp offensively. They've got two NBA talents in Malachi Branham and EJ Liddell. You know, we'll probably talk a little bit about Branham and how close or far he might be from being an NBA guy. But this is a terrible first round matchup for them because Loyola as a 10 seed is grossly underseeded as well. And is just so, so good defensively. Like I, I am, I can't wait to watch this one either, but what do you, what do you know about both teams or, or what are you looking for in an Ohio state Loyola matchup? Yeah. Um, I'm certainly more familiar with Ohio state, but um, given Loyola's like prominence in recent years, they beat Illinois in the tournament last year and they returned four of their five starters from that team. So um, I don't think like the moment will be too big or any of those type of things that you typically, you know, think about at least with, with mid majors um, since so many of their guys are back. Um, but yeah, Loyola's defense is especially what sticks out um, their ability to force tough twos. Um, they really stay at home off the ball and because they're, uh, individual defenders are so good uh, that they don't have to help a lot. Um, Lucas Williamson was the defensive player of the year in the uh, MVC. He seems like a natural matchup for Malachi Branham. Um, so even though Williamson probably isn't um, much of a draft guy, uh, just seeing how Branham does against that caliber of defender will be interesting. Um, right. And yeah, o- Ohio state, like, there, yeah, as you said, their offense is, is beautiful, and EJ Liddell is a load. I don't know exactly who's going to match up with him, uh, but they've really struggled at the end of the season. And um, I know you don't want to put too much weight in that, but they've lost to Nebraska, Penn State, um, Maryland. Been, so to be fair, they've been banged up. They've been injured. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that and that was what I was going to say. Um, I think Zed Key is questionable, and Kyle Young, who's like their bruising foreman, is. Um, he, I think he's more likely out than not, but he, I think they're listing him as questionable, but he, he's big for, for, uh, for them, I think, because it gives them a small ball look with him and Liddell as their front court um, that makes them super dynamic offensively. So uh, I guess their health is a big thing. And as you, you know, contributes to some of those losses as well. Well, it's just, it's going to be fascinating for me with a lot of eyes are on Branham right now because he has shot out of the gates over the last month and been a, a really big offensive piece for the Buckeyes. EJ Liddell is a matchup nightmare. I mean, we talked about David Roddy being skilled and big and strong. EJ Liddell is the same thing at about six, seven, six, eight, and he's a much better defender than a guy like Roddy is. So I don't know how you plan or, or try to match up for a guy like EJ Liddell. And what makes him so difficult to guard is when you have two other healthy guys in key and young in that front court that can really help them. Like, where do you put your attention on a guy like Liddell? And that's, man, they're just, they're such a tough team to guard. Loyola is a brutal first round matchup for them, but I keep looking forward to that second round against Villanova. Like You're already looking it. ahead. <laughs> I'm already I'm doing what nobody should ever do in March and just yeah. start circling in winners because there are matchups you want to see on that first weekend, right? That round of 32. Um, Villanova and Ohio State is one of them for me because it's the size, the beautiful offense, the high lows of Ohio State versus the kind of pace, discipline, um, really quickness at every position, ton of guards that, that Villanova goes with. They all shoot it so well. I just think that would be a matchup for the ages. And 
And I don't know, again, from a, a college and a stylistic standpoint, how that plays out, but we could see EJ Liddell get exposed a little bit too, right? Who does he guard mm-hmm. when Villanova runs four guards out there? Uh, I, I don't really know. And, and that's, that's something that I think the big 10 with as much size as they have, there aren't a ton of teams that are a little bit smaller and space oriented. One of them that actually gave Ohio state some problems was Nebraska. So it, right. it's kind of a, a method that has been proven to beat Ohio state as much as I love their individual guys and the way that they play together. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Um, and I think probably um, Young being healthy for that one would be big because it allows them to play Liddell at the five. Um, and as you said, I mean, he's gotten so much better as a defender. Like some of his weak side rim protection stuff is like crazy. I mean, he, he's like, I think he's listed as six, seven, but I, I think his wingspan's over seven feet um, and he really uses it uses it well. Um, so yeah, he, he's certainly a lot better as a defender. Um, I guess I'm curious about what you think about Malachi Branham, um, in January, I don't think he was like as much on like draft radars. I, you know, people knew who he was, but he kind of stuck, stood out to me. Like he's smooth mid range operator, shoot off the dribble. Um, he didn't have the best three point numbers, but I think they've gotten a lot better as the season's gone on. Um, so I know this is more prospect specific, but like, where, where are you at with him? And like, do you think he comes out this year? I think he needs a positive showing in the tournament to really come out and and declare for the draft. Uh, You know, these days there's no, no real downside to trying to test the waters a little bit and see what's out there, knowing that you can withdraw your name and return to school. I think that he probably sticks in for as long as he can to figure that out. But I worry about the athleticism a little bit. You know, he, he Mm -hmm. can shoot it decently well. He's fixed that part of his game where it's now a strength instead of kind of a, a, not a concern, but not a strength. Um, I I don't see him being somebody that elevates well in traffic. I think that he's much more of a mid range kind of create your own guy. There's appeal and there's upside to it, but there are a few freshmen in this class that I like better at that role, specifically a guy like Blake Wesley out of Notre Dame. Like I'm not overly sold on Branham. He's not in my top 60 right now. So yeah, there are, there are a lot of people that have him as a potential first round guy. I am not there yet. I see the flashes. I see the upside as a shooter. I want to continue to see a lot more before I really trust a guy like him. And a lot of that comes down to just not believing in his burst as a finisher at the rim. Yeah. He's definitely a a below the rim finisher too. Um, Yeah. I think that's probably, it's hard for him to be super efficient in the role that he's going to play if he doesn't um, get to the rim that much or, or finish there. So I totally see that concern. Um, I mean, he is still a freshman, right. And he, you know, doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to come out if his stock is like second round like that, um, or later second round. Um, but yeah, he certainly has the upside as like an off the dribble shooter and like a potential, um, like dribble pass shoot wing. Um, and I, you know, that obviously has value. I'm less familiar with, uh, Blake Wesley, but I, <laughs> I, I value your opinion. So I'm, I, I probably would, would align similarly if I'd seen him more, um, but I honestly, it's, it's weird. Like the ACC was so down this year that um, I saw Duke obviously, cause you know, they have so many prospects and they were like a top team, but like, who was it? Um, Notre Dame finished second in the ACC and he's, and they're playing the playing game. So I guess that speaks to the quality of the league this year. And just, you know, there weren't as many like primetime type matchups that were getting, getting you to tune in unless you're focused on some of those draft guys. Yeah. And, and we look, we could go on 
or I could go definitely on a rant <laughs> about kind of strength of schedule numbers and how the rich get richer when you play in a conference like the Big Ten um, that has a bunch of elite teams, whereas the ACC, which has one and, uh, you know, nobody else that ends up being consistently ranked, the strength of schedule or numbers go down, the amount of opportunity against ranked opponents goes down. And when you're trying to measure bubble teams and kind of go off of that, it's much easier to be a Rutgers of Michigan and Indiana where you have so many opportunities to play those teams. Whereas Notre Dame, they had Duke on their schedule once this year, right? That's the only ranked opponent that they play in conference. So metrics. Yeah. That's, that's not where we're going with a ton of this stuff, but uh, (laughs) it is, it is something that catches my eye about the the ACC or, or kind of the big 10 versus everybody else right now. So we're going to stay, uh, Eric, we're going to stay on theme here with potential second round matchups. And and there's one, again, another big 10 school here that I know you're going to be a little bit familiar with, but, uh, but one thing that uh, is really, really catching my eye is Wisconsin versus LSU. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One, Johnny Davis, man. I mean, what an electric scorer he is. And, and curious to hear your thoughts on how, you know, the swing offense has been adapted to him or, or what you see out of, out of him in the Big Ten. But LSU is in a funky spot, man. They just fired their head coach this weekend. And a very easy team to bet against in, in the tournament. As a result, are they going to really come apart with this? What is going on in that, in that regard? They have some legit prospects and legit dudes, as well as a suffocating defense. So seeing Johnny Davis go up against one of the nation's better defensive teams is really an exciting, tantalizing type of matchup, especially when you throw in a guy like Tari Eason into that. But then there's all of the off-court stuff with LSU. Are they really going to be motivated? Can they get past Iowa State, who's, I think, what, 8-12 and 12 in their last 20? It's... Yeah. A lot of questions there, but I would love to see Wisconsin LSU. Where are you at with Wisconsin right now? Yeah, um, I think you set it up perfectly. Um, yeah, they still run that swing offense, um, and it's it's just that they're they're putting a lot more of that usage on Johnny Davis and putting him in spots where he excels. Whether that's you know like coming off ball screens, I mean that's not as much swing stuff, but but uh, running him off like chin action to get him the ball like especially on the left block and letting him operate. Um, and he's, he sometimes faces smaller guards so he can facilitate out of that or just score um, from those positions. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big Johnny Davis guy, um, but he just has so much of Wisconsin's offensive load on his shoulders. Like it really is pretty, uh, pretty bare outside of him. And uh, yeah, he's got to do a lot for them. And, you know, a big question for them is, I mean, they should probably be fine in that first round matchup, but um he had that ankle injury and he played a lot in that big 10 tournament game against Michigan state, but I think he shot like three for 18 or something. So, you know, like is, is the ankle affecting his lift on his jump shot type of thing? Like, is that going to affect them in the tournament? Because if they have him at like, you know, 75 or 80%, like I don't see them going, you know, too far, but um, I do think they have a fairly nice matchup just given that Iowa state, I think they had three of their worst, um, like per possession offensive performances, like in the last decade in the last, like they scored 36 points in like 60 some possessions um, in a game recently. Um, and then LSU, as you said, with all the turmoil with Will Wade leaving and, and, you know, the uncertainty around that. So they got a pretty good draw, at least from like a on paper perspective. 
Um, but I'm not like huge on Wisconsin as a team, um, even though I'm you know a fan of Johnny Davis, you know, Big Ten Player of the Year. Uh, but w- what do you think about him as, as a prospect or, or something interesting in that matchup that you would be looking for? I, I think the health is going to be most important, right? Like if Johnny Davis is not at 100%, Wisconsin is vulnerable. And like you said, a really cushy draw for them there with all of the turmoil at LSU, with Iowa State being pretty horrendous over the last month. To me, they were the worst team to make it in the tournament as an at-large bid. I know their resume getting out to, I think, a 12-0 and start to the season really, really helped them. They beat some good teams in that span. But over the last two months, they're probably the worst team that made the NCAA tournament as an at-large bid. Um, Wisconsin's playing in Milwaukee in the first round. That's where the pod is. I mean, what a huge, huge home advantage that you can be able to get there. Don't sleep on Colgate. Uh, that's, that's, that's the yeah. one thing off there. I love the way that they play. They shoot the crap out of the ball. They share it pretty well. They're, they're tough defensively. They pay super fast. That can wear down a guy like Johnny Davis. And if he's not at hundred percent, they don't have enough offense to keep up. So I'm, I'm debating putting Colgate over. I don't think it's crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Uh, Especially, I I mean, it's hard to know, obviously for you and me, what his health is, but um, I mean, he'll have like almost a full more week off from the big 10 tournament, but yeah, he, he didn't look great (laughs) the last time we saw him. Uh, So, you know, I, you you were talking about a potential Wisconsin LSU and who knows how many of those teams yeah. even end up, you know, if they both win and, and end up playing each other. Yeah. And, and I'm the one throwing that off already. I know. Um, <laughs> right. Right. I, I think LSU gets slept on a little bit, right? A lot of people are going to pick Iowa state just because of what's going on at LSU. I actually think that's a great matchup for the Tigers. Like Iowa state doesn't score it. Well, LSU can absolutely suffocate them, get out and transition. I think they're going to be fine, but if Wisconsin, which they should be able to make it past Colgate, that's just an intriguing matchup to me. And, and from a scouting standpoint, you asked about Johnny Davis. Where am I at on him? I think he's a lottery guy. I don't know how high in the lottery I'd want to take him. He was creeping up top five, top six, maybe a month ago. I've pulled off a little bit. I think a lot of that has to do with some other guys playing really well, like Jalen Duren in Memphis is leapfrogging Johnny Davis at this point. I've been a big Jaden Hardy guy, and now he's backing it up with some efficiency and numbers in the G League. Dyson Daniels may be knocking on that door, right? There are, there are a lot of guys. Ben Matherin has jumped into my top six or seven. So I think that Davis has just been leapfrogged a little bit in terms of production there, but he's a lottery type of guy. Tari Eason at LSU is also a lottery type of, of player, especially with how he's played over the last month. So that being a potential head-to-head matchup, even though LSU switches a ton defensively, being able to see Tari Eason and Johnny Davis go at it one-on-one is an NBA draft scout's dream. Yeah, um, I'm less familiar with Eason. I, I've seen like you know bits and pieces and like part part of LSU um, because their scheme is so interesting. But his his block and steal numbers are like insane. Um, yeah, he's, and he's, it's, he's unreal. He's unreal. Yeah. And the fact that he played, he plays less than 60% of minutes too. So it's like, you would think that your best player who I think he comes off the bench still, is that right? Yeah, he does. Yeah. It's, it's like, you got to get this guy more time. Uh, (laughs) But uh, you know, that would be a a very interesting matchup and seeing how Johnny Davis fared against all those athletes from LSU and they're switching Um, just stylistically, like just so different where Wisconsin like never turns the ball over. I think they're like second in the country in turnover rate. Um, 
And, and LSU is like the complete opposite where they force a ton of turnovers and they turn it over a lot themselves. So just like the super athletic team, you know, that's probably a little bit more like frenetic versus like Wisconsin, you know, pretty plays pretty slow, doesn't turn it over. Just the contrasting styles there would be super interesting to watch. No doubt about it. And, and again, there, we could sit here and pick apart every single matchup, but let's yep. not get ahead of ourselves and go into the second round. Let's stay with a couple fun first round matchups here, right? Uh, one of them that caught my my eye, Michigan State Davidson. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah. Um, so I, I got to see Davidson a decent amount in the uh, A10 tournament. Um, not as much before that, but um, you know, their like their constant stagger screening motion is like beautiful. Um, and they obviously have Lee, who's a great six eight shooter. I don't know exactly where he stands draft wise, but I know he. People talk about him, but I don't know how serious of a prospect he is. Like at this point. Um, but yeah, Michigan state hasn't been the best defending off ball actions. I, uh, I think it's a decent matchup for, for Davidson. Um, also because like the first thing you got to think about with Michigan state is their transition offense. They run off of makes, they run off of misses and they're obviously off turnovers are super dangerous. And, uh, Davidson doesn't really turn the ball over. They have a really good transition defense and, you know, Bob McKillop's a good coach. Like he, you know, you know, he's familiar with, with Tom Mizzo. So I think if this game devolves in like a half court execution um, type of game, I, I would kind of lean Davidson maybe. Um, but, you know, af- athlete wise, like Michigan state is so clearly superior. Um, you know, this is the foster lawyer coming back to Michigan state game that, you know, lawyer. It, it, he kind of speaks to Davidson's like lack of athleticism, maybe a little bit smaller, um, so I, I think they help a lot on j- dribble drive stuff because they do have some weaker defenders and that leads to three point, uh, a lot of three point attempts that they give up. So, um, if Michigan States, they've been a bit inconsistent. So it, if they make a bunch of threes, I'd probably lean that way. Um, but if it gets into like a grinding type of game, um, I would, I'd maybe lean Davidson, but I, I, c- I guess I could, could, could be convinced either way on this one. I, I think your analysis is right where my gut is on this. You said Bob McKillop is a, a good coach. Uh, I actually think you're wrong. He's a great coach. Uh, he, he's, I undersold it. Oh, <laughs> uh, he is. He's so good at what he does. Like their stagger offense is so much movement and slips and curls around screens. When you have two guys that are elite shooters, like Hyun Jun Lee and Foster Lawyer, like, yeah, it, it's, it works to perfection. And, and like you said, a team that's not disciplined defensively or, has to try to find ways to grind it out in the half court is going to struggle. You know, Michigan state has probably the best tape that you can find out there on rim runners in, in transition yep. offense. And if Davidson is able to score to take away transition defense and, and prevent that from really beating them down the floor, I think that they're, like you said, a half court game suits them and they take this away. You know, Max Christie for Michigan state has been wildly, inconsistent and pretty disappointing since the turn of the new year here. And and he is the most talented player on Michigan state, but I hesitate in saying that he's the best because he's nowhere near ready to shoulder the load of kind of being the guy in an NCAA tournament. And I love what AJ Hoggard does in creating out of ball screens. He's probably one of the highest guys in terms of assist rate in the country Uh, does a fantastic job creating for others. So I think, Michigan state plays through him a little bit more in the sense that now the one guy scouts are going to tune in to see Max Christie is a little bit more marginalized. Um, Lee is an underrated defender. I will die on this hill. He's six foot seven. A lot of people think that he's a little bit slower. I actually think that he's, he's serviceable on that end. I love having specialty shooters at the NBA level. 
you take a look at what Duncan Robinson does for the Miami Heat. And I'm not calling Lee the next Duncan Robinson. Please don't quote me on. I don't want to see all this stuff out on Twitter from anybody there after. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. But in that type of role where you know guys like Garrison Matthews stick in the NBA and sign long-term contracts, even a guy like Armani Brooks comes out of nowhere and just scores 10 points a game for the Houston Rockets because they need floor spacing. Those guys are really valuable. And I would rather draft one of them in the early middle part of the second round and, and feel really comfortable with knowing I have that guy under contract for the next couple of years. If I think that he's elite at that role and, and Lee is borderline elite on that. So, you know, not a first round guy, but a really high caliber second who can come in, slide into the, an NBA offense and play an important role right away. And I think that we're going to see him kind of be the, the master in uh, taking Max Christie to school a little bit, right? Curl on a lot of those screens, showing him how a specialty shooter can do a lot of things. And people are going to be surprised by just how efficiently he plays his game outside of just knocking down three-pointers. Yeah, I think I, you, you made a very convincing case there. Um, and any sort of deficiencies he does have defensively, like given his positional size, he can just cover up for some of those, you know, just being that big um, that maybe a smaller shooter couldn't do. Um, and yeah, I, I think you also make a great point about like the curling off screens. Cause that's a lot of what Max Christie does at this point, it's transition threes and coming off of pin downs and, or, or floppy action in, uh, in the half court. So, um, you know, that's obviously Lee's specialty. So, uh, you know, one of those, like watch the master type of situations, more experienced guy, uh, you know, Christie's a lot better of an athlete, but yeah, I, I haven't been as impressed with him, especially as the season's gone on. And, um, Another note on this matchup, Tyson Walker, who usually is their starting point guard, he has a, an ankle injury and he's questionable. He left in like the first minute or two of their last Big Ten tournament game. But Hogard is a, is a is a good point guard as well. He leads the country in assistery. I did I did them for the um, that Jordan Sperber video. So uh, yeah, he he's great in transition, especially uh, less so in the half court. And that's kind of why I think if it becomes a half court game, I would probably lean slightly towards uh, towards Davidson. Shout out Jordan Sperber, the best, the best. He was yeah. uh, one of the early guests here on the podcast. Long time, you know, friend. We've talked back and forth for forever and forever. Unbelievable guy. Great basketball mind. I know you've probably enjoyed working with him a lot at Hoop Vision. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, willing to help out, you know, anyone, you know, whoever's platform or size of of a per person they are and obviously he produces some of the best college basketball content there is so yeah definitely only good things to say on the, on that front well eric there are three other first round matchups that i've kind of circled as being really intriguing and i'd love to get your take on one of them and i'll let you pick okay all right so memphis and boise state in an eight nine matchup you know, Jalen Duran, a Memphis team that's top 10 in both offensive and defensive efficiency since January, excuse me, since February 1st. And uh, a really experienced and long Boise State team. We've got UNC Marquette in another 8-9 matchup. You know, Caleb Love, a little bit more spread ball screen look from UNC than we've seen in the past. And Marquette with Justin Lewis, who is one of the better players in the country, surrounded by nine guys who all kind of platoon in minutes in a Shaka smart kind of scheme. And then the third matchup we could look at Iowa and Richmond, Richmond, that Princeton offense, which, you know, basketball purists, we love to watch. It's, it's, it's beautiful offense. They've got some NBA caliber guys. 
some of the most experienced seniors with Grant Golden and Jacob Gilliard. This is a team that took down Kentucky in Rupp Arena a little over a year ago, as well as in Iowa, that fine-tuned machine at this point with Keegan Murray, probably the best, most efficient scorer in the nation, an offense that's top 10 in the country, if not top five, and then coming off of their Big Ten tournament win, are they susceptible to a really veteran Richmond team that also won their conference tournament? So those three matchups, take your pick. Where are we going around the country? Yeah, um, I, th- I think I lean towards um, Iowa-Richmond just because I think it has more like long-term potential impact maybe on the tournament just because um, for as interesting as like some of those other teams are, I mean, Memphis can pull an upset, UNC, you know, those teams can pull upsets. Iowa has a chance, I think, in their region to maybe make a, a pretty deep run, especially given what they're, um, how they played in the Big Ten tournament, obviously. Um, you know, you don't want to put too much weight on that, like, you know, picking Virginia Tech and Iowa and stuff. But I mean, they've really been humming for the last two months. Um, I think since February 1st, they're number two in the country in um, adjusted efficiency. So they're playing their best basketball for sure. Keegan Murray is like intergalactically like dom- like to, to an insane level. Like his like he was playing extremely well, like through uh, December, January, but they kind of had a, a weak non-conference schedule and in, in big 10 play, he's continued to play unbelievably well um, and just dominate in a way where like you obviously see him dominating, but like he, he's not that like raw, raw guy. He's cool, calm, collected the whole time. Um, he's super smooth, like drive right or left, like, you know, long finisher, great in transition. Um, so you know, everyone's kind of on them and I think to make a run, but Richmond's dangerous and, uh, you know, they're hard to guard. Iowa isn't the greatest defensive team. Keegan Murray makes them better, but um, I think it's a dangerous first round matchup. And while, you know, while it's hard to pick against Iowa, um, you know, a lot of people could have them going far and be overlooking this first game. So I'm super interested to see if Iowa continues to dominate the way they have been against the defense or against an offense that's hard to guard. And if anyone on Richmond is able to really contain, or, you know, you're not going to stop uh, Keegan Murray, but contain him even a little bit is just very difficult. Oh, you're, you're killing me here, Eric, because every year there's one matchup of like a four or a five seed who I think has final four potential. If they can just get past their first the, game. And, and right. this, this is the one for me. And it's not just because Richmond is experienced. You talked about, you're not going to stop Keegan Murray. You're just not. Um, But can you slow him down a little bit? Can you make him work for it? Be a little bit more inefficient. I think Tyler Burton for Richmond is one of those guys who physically is the right size and and kind of build to go at him a little bit. You know, six, seven wing, long arms, good defender, strong frame. He can bother Murray as a jump shooter on the perimeter, stay with him when he attacks closeouts. And he's not going to kind of fall over and be a wallflower if Murray tries to take him into the post. I think that that allows Richmond to stay home elsewhere and not pay a ton of extra attention to, because that that's where Iowa kills teams, right? They're great with ball movement. They have shooters everywhere. So if you have to collapse on the paint, especially on double team in the post, it's impossible to beat them. Right. I think Richmond has a legitimate shot because as good as Iowa is the, you know, offensively, like we've seen it before, even in that that game in the I think it was the Big Ten semifinals against Indiana. Like the Hoosiers got their way with them a little bit offensively. You can score points on this Iowa team, and and that's where 
you know, Richmond is just so they're a well-oiled machine on that end. They're old, they're experienced. They don't run a ton of ball screens. They beat you in a, I think last year I did a study on them in the final five seconds of a shot clock. They run the fewest ball screens of any team in the country. Pretty much everything that they do is sprint handoff based keepers, fake handoffs, slip mm-hmm. split back doors where they try to get you in the late clock and kind of anticipating. And it's smart. It's a great way to play, but man, is it, is it going to be tough? If, if this is a close game, I think Iowa is going to have a tough time stopping Richmond because their offense, if they get momentum can get going for the first 35, they're going to be really dangerous in those final five minutes. I, I just, I'm, I want Iowa to be my final four pick. They're so bad. I know. I, that's I, how I, I feel. Keegan, but oh, this, this first round matchup's killing me. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, do you hedge against it? And like the chance that they lose and, you know, not have them go as far. Yeah. It's super tough. I think I'm, I'm kind of where you are uh, on them. And Fran, Fran McCaffrey's had a, a bit of a tough go in the tournament in the past. Um, the, this, these are their two best, te- the best teams that he's had last year. They were a two seed. They lost in the second round to Oregon. Um, and then this year they're obviously a five. Um, but he's never made it to the second weekend of the tournament. And he's been a head coach since like the nineties. So, um, I mean, you know, at some of those places like Siena, you're not going to make the sweet 16, but he's made the tournament a lot. And, uh, he's been in Iowa forever and never made the second weekend. So I don't know how much you make of that, but, uh, either he's due or he's, you know, some sort of limitation, but they're certainly hot and they can, they can beat anyone, but there's definitely a risk in this matchup, as you said. All right, Eric, uh, I want to get some rapid fire thoughts here on a couple big name teams before we get you out of here, because I, again, sure. I know you, you do a little bit more specific breakdowns on things, but they've got a ton of prospects. They've got a ton of great things going on. They're, they're you know the best teams in the country. Everybody takes a peek at them at some point. So um, mm-hmm. we'll start with Gonzaga. Where are you at with Gonzaga, the number one ranked team here coming into the tournament? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's not to like, right. Uh, (laughs) They're probably seen as the best team and they probably are the best team. I mean, I think Arizona is awesome too, but uh, I mean, and Tommy Lloyd's similar system to Gonzaga, but um, you know, dominant two point team where they have the best two point offense in the country and they have the best two point defense in the country. You know, Chet is like the perfect fit with Drew Timmy, just in terms of he's able to space the floor offensively and then be a great rim protector on the other end and kind of cover over some of Timmy's uh, defensive limitations, I guess, um, you know, Nemhard's steady in the pick and roll game. They have experience uh, Julian Strother and uh, Rasir Bolton, you know, on the wings, both 40% shooters. Um, yeah. They're, they're really good and they're going to be hard to beat and hard to pick against uh, in the bracket. What, what about you? I, where, where I, are you I, at? Yeah. I, I love, I love Chet. I, I think they're my, pick to win the national title this year. And biggest reason for that is this is the Gonzaga team that finally has a rim protector. You know, that's what Chet provides them. They've been so dominant offensively in two point range. I think that they can, they used to get sliced up in ball screens or not not necessarily guarding the post one-on-one Timmy got in foul trouble last year in a couple of games. And that really hurt them a little bit. Finally having a rim protector and a bigger guy that can go out there and and take care of that stuff is really, really important. Uh, But one team that they may have to get past in order to get to the final four is Duke in the same region. Any thoughts on, on the Blue Devils with all of their first-round talent and everybody watching Coach K before he kind of rides off into the sunset? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you said I, the pieces they have. I mean, there's so much, like, individual talent. But I don't know. As a team, like, I think they're probably the worst two-seed, at least on paper. 
And I'm a little down on them. I mean, they have so much talent. They could beat any team clearly, but like relative to like their seating. And I think how far people will probably have them going. I'm a little down on Duke. Um, I don't know if the ACC tournament has me biased in a negative way, but they, they couldn't stop Syracuse, Miami, or Virginia tech. And against like Virginia techs, you know, like Mike, uh, Mike young, like more complicated, like off ball screening, dribble handoff stuff, like off the ball. Duke has some issues defensively. Um, they're, they're, they're really good individually, but like when, when they're facing more like a more complicated system, I think they struggle and, um, they're not a great, like defensive rebounding team at all, despite like their size and athleticism. So, I think they have some limitations offensively. They're great. They, you know, they don't do much in terms of like complicated scheme, but they have such great talent that you almost don't really need them to, um, you know, Paolo face up jab, jab, shoot the mid range. I mean, he's huge. It's he's a massive guy and uh, he's hard to stop uh, certainly, but um, I guess I'm not super high on them making a great run despite it being, you know, coach K's last year and all the narrative stuff. Yeah, they got to play through Paolo because he's he's so dominant one on one. But, the, you know, this is a young team, right? A ton of freshmen, Wendell Moore, a junior and Mark Williams, a sophomore. Like Williams covers up for a ton of the defensive mistakes everybody else makes. Yep, that's a great point. And, and beyond that, this is an era of college basketball right now because of the transfer portal, because of the extra year. Like Teams that are in the tournament are going to be making the Sweet 16 and beyond are older than they've ever been, at least older than they've been in the last 10, 15 years of the more one and done type of era. So I just have a really tough time picking Duke to make it through a bunch of those tests. Like Texas tech is as experienced as you get. They're so good defensively. Like I just, it's really hard to pick Duke right now. Um, you know, last one here, Purdue, because they were a trendy pick coming into the season. They've got two fantastic big men and a top five, NBA draft pick in Jaden Ivey, but it's really hard to get a lot of momentum on Purdue's side right now, despite making it to the big 10 title game. Where are you at with Purdue? Yeah. Um, I think I still like them. I could see them losing early um, as they've been prone to do for, for whatever reason. I know they, you know, that one year they lost in that crazy game against Virginia in the elite eight and that Virginia ended up winning it all. But um, I still think I like this team. They have clear defensive limitations with, you know, ED seven, four can't really move that well, especially against ball screen teams. Travion is not the greatest either. Um, you know, not a rim protector at all. So they have some defensive issues. I mean, even Ivy is a very inconsistent defender despite his physical tools. Um, but I mean, offensively, it's like, they're unbelievable to watch. Like Matt Painter runs a beautiful offense, like off ball screening for Sasha Stefanovic dribble, hand, like super complicated dribble handoff stuff. Uh, Ivy speed and transition, you know, the stuff down low with Edie scoring, you know, where he's like under the basket and Travion's passing. Like there's so many elements to uh, produce offense that are just so beautiful to watch. Um, but the, I mean, clearly the defensive limitations are going to be eventually what, what does them in, but I, I don't know. I could still see them making a run. Like I, I considering them in the um, final four, if like around, you know, they have to, I think they're in the same section as Kentucky. Um so if, you know, we're talking matchup far ahead, but that would be an interesting one, just given Kentucky's offensive rebounding with Shibwe and against those huge guys in, in Purdue. But uh, yeah, I, I still think I'm in on Purdue, but uh, yeah, their defense is just scary in terms of uh, when is it going to let them down? Yeah. Like Purdue 
really fun team to watch. Not a fun team to be a fan of though, because they lose in a lot of ways that kind of cause you to pull your hair out. And, and from an NBA standpoint, they got this guy, Jaden Ivey, who's a freak athlete, so good at just turning on the Jets and going past people, whether it's in the full court or the half court. And they don't play through them that much. They play through their bigs quite frequently. They've gone to the pick and roll more, but that's comparative term, right? That's It's still not as much as you might like them to do or necessarily think that uh, in a, a late game takeover situation, are they really going to be throwing the ball inside and trusting all that movement stuff when hey, if they're down or it's a close game, they just need something quick, who are they really going to go to? And can they space the floor enough to make it happen? So, yeah, yeah that's that's a great point. Um, where are you at in terms of Ivy? I mean, you know, he's a fairly easy consensus top five guy at this point, but like his decision making, um, his ability to use his speed and kind of leverage that to, to create advantages. Um, where are you at with him as a prospect? I... I... I don't buy into the shot as much as other people. I think that if he shoots the ball really effectively off the bounce, that defenders are going to come at him a little bit more, which makes Mm -hmm. reading the second line of defense that much easier. Uh, And because he doesn't do enough to pull them away from the basket, I think that his passing reads are going to struggle a little bit as a result. Um, You know, he hasn't gotten a ton of pick and roll reps in college, especially spread pick and roll stuff that you get more of in the NBA. Uh, it's, it's different. I I think his game translates well in the sense that the lane will be a lot more spread for him. We get to see his athleticism more, but I do worry that teams just kind of go under play off of him a little bit because he's not a dynamic pull-up shooter. And if he's not killing teams in transition, you know, what value is he adding in the half court? So I've got my questions but I think that he is 100% the best guard in this class and the gamble worth taking just because of the raw skills that are there and kind of the flashes that he's given us this year. I'm, I'm a big fan of his, even though I, uh, he was, he went to my rival high school when I was coaching high school back in the state of Indiana. So I didn't like coaching against him back in the day, but I can uh, imagine (laughs) hard, hard to deny the talent that he has right now. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah, well, Eric, loved having you on here to, to help us get, get ready for the NCAA tournament. Tomorrow, Wednesday, is the day we go to the grocery store. We get all the snacks and the chips so we don't have to leave Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. I know you'll be watching. I know you've got, as you were telling me before, some other obligations to get to this weekend. But uh, plug us here before you're getting out of here. Where can the people find you? What do you have going on? And, and what projects are you working on that we should all be looking out for? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. This is this is great. Um, but I think really, I'll probably put out some stuff during the tournament as uh, my commitments allow for me to, as you alluded to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was I helped uh, Jordan Sperber on on his YouTube breakdown for the 68 teams. I did a bunch of those teams. So that was something I was working on that obviously just finished on on Sunday now that we got the bracket. Um, but otherwise, just anything uh, college or, or future draft stuff that I might do once the college season ends will be on my Twitter account. And that's uh, Eric underscore S-H-A-P, like the start of my last name, Shapiro. Um, and I have a website where I might add some stuff, how to talk basketball.com um, just, just defines different types of terms and uh, actions, that sort of thing um, for people who maybe are less informed, but I think your audience is pretty smart. So it may not be the best for, for them trying to like learn the game better, but uh, yeah, more, more just my Twitter account, but yeah, thank, thanks for giving me this opportunity to plug, plug stuff I'm doing. 
I was thrilled to have you on here. Uh, thank you for, for staying with us, uh, all you viewers and, and listeners out there. And as always, remember to ban the take foul. Thanks for watching, guys.